0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: Welcome to FedLife, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment
2: policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA.
0: Here's your host,
2: Tom Temin.
1: Hello, and welcome to the show. A coalition of federal manager advocacy groups has been urging the White House and Congress to fix what they say is a systemic problem with federal pay. It's called compression. It mainly affects those at the upper ranks of federal career employees. An old provision in federal employment law means no one is allowed to earn more than presidential appointees, and Congress has stubbornly held off giving them a raise. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with the latest. And Drew, just walk us through the details of pay compression. This is something that comes up from time to time, but it seems to be getting worse as the years progress.
0: Right, Tom. It, it is, as you said, it's because there is a pay cap for political appointees, which are employees work for the government, but they are on the executive schedule. So those at level four and above are under a pay cap. And because of the way the um, stat- statute is set, that impacts employees on the general schedule and kind of those upper levels. So usually about GS-15 is when you start seeing that what they call pay compression start to hit. And this does depend on, you know, where the GS employees work and their spot exactly on the federal career ladder. But it's been an issue for several years. And as you said, it is something that gets a little bit worse every year as other employees on the general schedule who are lower down continue to get these annual federal pay raises.
3: In
1: other words, if say Gina Raimondo at Commerce is making, I don't know what they earn off the top of my head, but say $200,000, let's say, that means the highest paid career person there can't make more than $199,999.99.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much what the problem is. And that's why this coalition is kind of bringing this up now.
1: And what are they specifically saying?
0: They're saying that pay compression, as I said, it's become worse and it's something that they're now saying needs a solution, needs a fix. It's something that the Biden administration back in March when they released their 2024 budget proposal, they hinted at the idea of fixing pay compression. It was specifically mentioned in the budget, but so far we haven't seen any proposal or any specific legislation following that initial just hinting at this pay compression fix. So now you have groups, a coalition of manager advocacy groups for federal managers saying, you know, where is this proposal? And they they want to see more from the Biden administration. And they're saying generally that the Federal Salary Council and the president's pay agent just aren't doing enough to address these more systemic issues. So even though they say it's a good thing that there have been for example, new pay locality areas that are going to be added in 2024, most likely, that's not enough to address these deeper rooted issues with the way the general schedule is set up.
1: Yes, you do see agencies turning more and more to different narrowly applied authorities to say, give their data officers or their chief technology officers or the CIOs more money. But you know that's a process they have to go through and it doesn't really apply across the board. I guess the administration could do several things or propose several things. It could prevail on Congress to raise the cap on politicals, and therefore the everybody else could follow in the wake. Or they could say, let's just eliminate that provision that you can't make more than a political if you're a career. But nothing has come out yet from that promise of a proposal.
0: Right. There's nothing yet that we've seen. OMB hasn't released any sort of way to specifically address this, even though it is something that the president's pay agent, which is this three-person panel from the Office of Personnel Management, OMB, and then the Labor Department. They've said in many reports across many years that federal pay is an issue, that there need to be major legislative reforms. But so far, you know, no one's made that specific proposal. And I think now we're getting a lot more frustration from the voices of advocacy groups. And one of those groups is the Senior Executives Association. And I spoke to Jason Breifel, who's their Director of Policy and Outreach, to hear more
2: the president's pay agent has written reports to the president for 20 years saying doesn't make sense and doesn't work. I read 20 years of those reports. You get to a certain point where it doesn't even matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. They both are saying that the process in the system doesn't work, is, is leaving certain employees behind and needs to be revisited. And yet we seem like we're in this never-ending carousel ride where somebody is just pointing to the person to the left of them but nobody ever does the hard work and comes up with a proposal
1: well, I admire his intestinal fortitude for being able to read 20 years of pay agent reports, but this is more than just someone would like a better salary for themselves. There are larger effects here, aren't there?
0: Right. I think the, the one of the questions is that there is this wage gap between the private sector and the public sector. So it's been federal sector wages have trailed the private sector for at least a decade. And that's according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you know others say that the general schedule in general that whole pay system is just in- completely outdated and needs to be revamped or just removed changed and a lot of these bigger deeper questions that you can kind of look at but so far as you said there's more of these piecemeal changes for specific groups of employees that are getting these pay raises but that also can bring more complications with it. So it's just this big question where I think you're getting a lot more groups and people who are following this asking, you know, where's where's the answer? Where is this proposal from the Biden administration after they said that it was part of their plan in the budget proposal?
1: Now there's a coalition. They have notified the Labor Department, the White House, OPM, with what they want. What's going to happen next, if anything, Drew?
0: The Government Managers Coalition, or GMC, that's the name of this coalition of federal managers groups, they said that they're eagerly awaiting the proposal from the Biden administration, again, they do say, you know, thanks to OPM for uh, putting out these new locality pay changes and that sort of proposal there. And that is a good step, but that there need to be these larger reforms. One part of the question here, though, is at least for pay compression, there would be a pretty significant cost to fix to go back and add those pay step increases for the GS-15 employees and others. So there is that bigger question. But Jason Breifel from SEA said it's going to be important to look at those numbers regardless.
2: The data and the facts about that need to be put on the table so we can have a rational conversation about what do we do about all that. But just being afraid that the number is big and knowing that agencies can't do anything with it is still no justification for the lack of leadership that we're seeing. If you read these like reports from the page, you can see a trend from administration to administration year to year. They're like, man, this system's crazy. Somebody really needs to propose a better system here. Who are these folks waiting on to come up with the plan?
1: Good question.
0: It is a good question. And, you know, I think maybe we'll see some response from the Biden administration here. But for the time being, it's it's just a waiting game to see what proposal they're going to come up with.
1: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll take a short break, and when we return, certified financial planner Art Stein with a review of Thrift Savings Plan results so far this year and what you should think about for the remainder of 2023. You're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tammen. For Thrift Savings Plan Investors, 2023 so far has brought a partial climb back out of the depths of 2022, and it's a good time to separate the patient investors over here and the would-be market timers over there. We get more from certified financial planner Art Stein. And Art, let's start with a review of TSP funds so far. How are they doing relative to where they were and how are they doing relative to the market in general?
4: Well, over the year to date, uh, rates of return for all the TSP funds have been very good. And for the stock funds, they've really been great. Uh, The C fund's up 17% this year. The S fund, 13%. The I fund, 12%. Those are really big rates of return for a six-month period. Uh, F fund's up 2%. And uh, the G fund's up 2% too. These are all rounded to 1%, of course. So a very good year. Now, a lot of contrast to last year, which was an unusually bad year because both the bond, uh, the F fund, the, the intermediate term bond fund and all the three stock funds were down by double digits. And, you know, a certain number of people are, during those kinds of decline are tempted to pull their money out of the stock funds and probably the bond fund too and put it in the g fund uh, which has an advantage that it never fluctuates in value it's never going to go down it's never going to go up very much either but people like that safety and that hurts them because then they're not invested in the stock funds when the stocks start to go up. And for employees, uh, what I find maybe even more disturbing is the people that do this, Tom, tend to then start making their bi-weekly investments into the G fund too. instead of, you know, concentrating those into the funds that have gone down in value. Uh, which gives them the opportunity to buy shares when they're cheap, uh, which is a lot of leverage when they start going up. So that kind of, uh, it's really an emotional reaction can very much hurt people. Other thing to keep in mind is that really bad years, you know, historically uh, have been followed by lots of very good years. And overall, you know, if you look long periods of time, the, uh, TSP funds, the stock funds have way outperformed the bond funds over the last 15 years, the average annual return per year for the C fund was 11%, 9% for S. And you know compare that with 2.9% for the F fund and 2.3% for the G fund. It's a big difference.
1: In other words, you should have your strategy in place and be patient with it, even when it gets a little wavy and you get a little bit of queasiness. Yeah.
4: Um, investors need to anticipate these types of market declines. You know, there's always a potential. And, you know, the worst thing that someone can do is to try and time it in advance. So, you know, people were pulling out – um you know, in anticipation of a uh, recession this year, which has been heavily forecasted and has never happened, (laughs) you know, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon unless we, uh, you know, there's some kind of terrible event happens to cause it, which, you know, I mean, if you look at COVID, you look at the war in Ukraine, uh, lots of other things. I mean, it's possible, but To invest for that doesn't make sense.
1: And sometimes the economy and markets will surprise you. I mean, everyone anticipated with these rising rates of interest, okay, the inflation was tamped down, but it didn't really have the recessionary effects that people remember vestigially from the 1980s.
4: Absolutely. I mean, the reason the Fed raised interest rates was to reduce inflation, even if it meant that we would have a recession. And they were willing to make that sacrifice. They've done it before. And, you know, as painful as it is, it makes sense. But the recession has not happened. And the most striking thing is that employment is, you know, the employment numbers are great. Unemployment is very low. And that is really counterintuitive to a time when interest rates have increased so much.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, it could be that we are on a verge of a structural change in the economy and the way it operates. I mean, this happens from time to time, you know, every 50 years or so, you know, the so-called service economy. I don't know what the next economy is, but it seems like all of that was accelerated to some degree, maybe by the pandemic, which-
4: And that could be, but it could also be, Tom, that just economists are not very good at forecasting the effects of things like higher interest rates. I mean, they can look back and say you know looking at all the historical examples most of the time this happened if we did this but it's never all the time and the exceptions uh, really uh, can put a permanent dent in someone's investments if they make the wrong move i mean what we do for for uh clients in my firm is we don't do anything in, in advance We don't try and forecast the market, but when the market goes down a lot, we sell bond funds to put money into stock funds and that we take advantage of the decline in the markets. Now, when the markets are way up, then we're selling stock funds to put money into bond funds and take advantage of the big increases in stocks. That way we're not forecasting, we're reacting to what has actually happened. I think that's better. What I would suggest for TSP investors is that they keep in mind there's always a stock market crash coming up. It's just we don't have any idea when it's going to happen. The next one could be 11 years from now. For all I know, Tom, it could be 11 days from now. But you need to have a plan as to what you're going to do. And pulling money out in advance is not a good plan.
1: Right. And so how do you balance what you do with your plan versus that idea of sticking with your strategy and not trying to time the market? There's some kind of middle ground there that makes sense for individual well, investors. I, I
4: just think don't try and uh, manage your investments, move money around in, in anticipation of what you think might happen, or even what you read in all the papers and here on CNBC what they – Think is going to happen no matter how many people think it's going to happen and um, but if something does happen well then maybe you just continue to invest you continue with the same allocation you had before or maybe you move money into what's gone down in value because selling high and buying low and then maybe selling high later that's the way to make a profit but if you're it's too tempting to sell once things start going down and the markets crash and people get scared and disgusted, and then they're selling low. And it's very hard to get back into the market emotionally.
1: Right. And so you have to kind of filter out a lot of the news stream and the consensus forecasts and all of this information. It's it's almost hard to avoid hearing it day in, day out but you really in,
4: in, 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 reading it too. And I mean, keep in mind, and you know, you know, this a lot better than I do. If you're on CNBC five days a week, or you're writing an article for the wall street journal, five days a week, you have to come up with some hook five days a week. So it's easy to like overanalyze the market and say, the market is telling us this, or the market's unhappy about that, or this makes the market nervous. And the market is not a person. it, it And it doesn't react that way. It, it, the sum total of millions of decisions being made every day by I don't know how many numbers of people, and the net result of that is that the market is going to go up or down.
1: Yeah, people treat the market the same way they treat Twitter or something or social media, you know, you see these headlines, Twitter goes crazy over X, Y, Z. You know, my answer always is, so what? (laughs) That means absolutely nothing in reality. Yeah.
4: And a lot of the analysis you'll see, if you look closely, you frequently see the words, the market may crash this year. Well, yeah, that could happen. (laughs) Or it may go up. I mean, that's not really a forecast. That's just stating the obvious. It could go up or down. It's like, we could have rain this year. Yeah. You know, that'll happen. Um, you need to ignore a lot of that and just look at the historical trends. Past performance, no guarantee of future performance, but historically, stocks have outperformed bonds in well diversified, well managed portfolios by significant amounts long term but have way underperformed for months, or in some cases, years. Well, for most people, the TSP is a long-term investment, and they need to invest accordingly.
1: Yeah, this would seem like a good time to stick with the plan, because the market is up. Again, we don't know what it's going to do in the second half of the year. But the fundamentals, such as they are, have driven this market, and nothing has fundamentally changed. The inflation seems to be under control. Now they're talking about wage inflation, but that's kind of a hard thing to be against, I guess, if your wages are going up. Yeah, I mean, wage inflation, for most people, that's
4: a good thing because their wages are going up. And it's not like the price of a chicken goes up for no reason at all. I mean, the chicken doesn't get anything out of that, as we know. (laughs) And um, we want to see wages go up more quickly than uh, inflation and and. You know, historically, more efficient use of resources and things like computers and maybe AI have allowed for wages to go up much more quickly than inflation.
1: Certified financial planner Art Stein will end on that note. Okay. Thanks a lot, Tom. And this thought, I recently spoke with Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn. She's in charge of the Commission Corps of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. She's a Service to America medals finalist this year for cleaning out a culture of bullying and harassment on the ships and aircraft that NOAA operates. The change in culture came from a combination of firings, training and education, and listening to employees. I asked her a question I often ask of agency heads and senior managers. Do you ever wish you could be underground boss and kind of spend a couple of days or something in one of the units or aboard one of the planes and just kind of observe? Of course, most of them would probably recognize you.
5: Yeah, I do. Sometimes I get to spend some time on a ship or, you know, visit our centers. But I do wish I could more, you know, to make sure that I'm staying connected with the hard work that people are doing every day. There's a lot of sacrifices. People are away from their families for months and months at a time and you know they're making a lot of sacrifices to collect this data for the nation so it's always important for me to stay grounded and
2: realize
5: You know what the challenges are that they're facing, what the sacrifices are that they're making, and how committed they are to collecting this data.
1: Rear Admiral Nancy Hahn, Director of NOAA's Commission Corps and Director of its Marine and Aviation Operations. And that's it for today's show. We thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with more information and advice for the career workforce. You've been listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for listening to Fed Life here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search Fed Life. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work.
5: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you, it's a pleasure as mine.
5: You first joined AFGE in 1981, during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981. And you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader?
3: The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader, has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE
5: handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts
3: and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself, but I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
5: As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says, AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain.
5: I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de- de- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the deep south. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple
5: approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks different energy it's it's always straightforward yes. honest here's the truth yes and it's it's easy yes right? yes it's a lot easier than having multiple personas absolutely so you,
3: yeah absolutely
5: what's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career
3: you know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yes, if that's okay. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part, okay? I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it, bad enough. If you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
5: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, Mm -hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today?
3: It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, a doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. A doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now.